0: All right, Craig's arrived. All right, nice. So I'm back with Trend to talk about the Baruz Buchani book. Yeah, which name? Oh, I forgot already. Wait, No Friend But the Mountains, right? Yeah, I listened to an interview today and apparently that's um, derived from a, a Kurdish saying. Oh, really? Yeah, so I guess to explain to the listeners, uh, the book is by an Iranian Kurd uh, who attempted to migrate to Australia after um being chased out of Iran uh for his activities in in the Kur- the Iranian Kurdish Workers Party and uh he ended up being picked up by the Australian Navy in en route to uh, uh Australia and was indefinite and has been indefinitely detained on uh Manus Island. Um, yeah and I think
1: If I remember correctly, he's not going to be resettled uh,
0: anytime soon. No, it seems like he's just... It seems like, um, well, to spoilers, I suppose, um, but this isn't really a book you should be reading for spoilers. Um, (laughs) uh, uh, I think the the riots at the end of the book in uh, 2017, I want to say, led to a sort of change in how, in the living situations, they're no longer just kept in a cage all day, essentially, but... um, Yeah, they're still just trapped there indefinitely.
1: Yeah. um, But yeah, I I guess I'll go into how we got to this stage. Um, Because it actually does coincide with, uh, in 2012, uh, the Senate passed a law basically saying that, you know, um, no people in Christmas Island or Manus Island already places like that, will be able to settle in Australia. As far as, you know, Australia's legal uh, system is concerned, they're like, yeah, they're... By attempting to uh, enter Australia um, by boat, like, they've given up, like, all rights, you know, so... Um, I don't know, do do you remember um, the Trump thing, where... I don't know if this was news in America, but like Obama had like made a like refugee swap deal with Australia? No, I don't
0: I don't recall that. That that does sound um I think there's been a couple such deals like floated, but um what, what are you referring to?
1: Uh, well at the end of Obama's uh presidency he um they made uh well I think the Prime Minister at the time was uh, Malcolm Turnbull. And uh, they made a deal, basically, where we would send, like, so many of the people detained in Manus to America for resettlement. And uh, in exchange, we would take, I think, some Mexican uh, or Central um, yeah, Central American Latino uh, refugees. Uh, but that deal was blown up when Trump got elected in
0: 2016. I read too yeah. that uh, Australia had turned down a deal with New Zealand. Maybe the current, um, more right wing Australian government had turned down a deal with New Zealand to resettle uh, some of the Christmas Island and Manus Island asylum seekers. Yeah. Yeah. You could maybe what, what happened there? Um,
1: well, I'll, I'll go into the whole history first. So, like,
0: Yeah, probably it, best.
1: Yeah. So this all starts with 2001. Um, after the invasion of Afghanistan, um, there, uh, I can't remember the actual like date. I think it was like September, August, something like that. Um, there was a um, a Norwegian oil tanker uh called the HMS uh, uh Tampa. It's called like the Tampa, Tans- the Tampa incident, or like the Tampa affair in Australia. But basically, they picked up a bunch of uh, hazaras and uh some Pashto uh trying to get to australia uh if people don't know hazaras are a minority uh, i think minority in afghanistan who uh collaborated with uh you know allied forces so basically the in the north where the taliban uh, had a lot of power they had to leave or face like retribution
0: you know, attacks and stuff like that. But they're they're anyway. kind of in a similar position to the Kurds overall. And uh, also, um, in the episode with Shahrazad, we we talked about the Hazara a couple times. Oh right, okay, yeah. So, <laughs> all right. Um, that was cool. I just wanted to <laughs> do a plug.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. Um, I yeah, because I don't know how much people know about Afghanistan. Yeah, you know?
0: uh, I I don't think it's very much to be honest. Yeah, um uh, also
1: anyway, this uh, Norwegian tanker picked them up and it caused a scandal. Uh, because basically Australia did not want to uh take them and uh, Norway I think Norway were dropping them off at the nearest country which was Australia at the time. And basically the Norwegian government shamed uh the John Howard government in Australia for uh violating like um UNN, HCR uh, you know, regulations. Um, And so What what
0: political party would he have would that Prime Minister have been a part of? (laughs) The Australian Liberal Party of course.
1: Um, Although Labour is yeah, Labour's not too much better but yeah, he was um, yeah, he was like the most successful Liberal politician in the modern era. A lot of damage that he did but yeah so from there um uh like vote people became like a huge political talking point in Australia basically like you know stop the boats became um you know like the slogan uh for the pre like for the uh governments going forward and um it's pretty much stayed in the uh, yeah, in the political imagination uh, even today um and hence, like, Labour has, like shifted right, uh on these issues, uh, you know to kind of, um, win elections and, um but basically, um they introduced the uh, border protection bill which basically says that like, you know, Australia um can pick up any like boat uh within our uh our designated waters, you know, whatever it's called. Um and uh we can use force uh if need be. Like basically if you get caught within Australian um waters uh, on a boat illegally, like, you know, technically you can be shot and like it's all fine under Australian law. Uh, you know so yeah the border protection bill was like the big one um and then uh yeah what what else um uh yeah so like basically like from there um you know uh you had this um like uh so, like Australia has like lots of island territories as well um you know, but Christmas Island was one of those you know, but that was like the first offshore offshore detention um you know, and basically what Australia did was uh they decided that uh there was this thing called like the refugee zone, you know <laughs> um, and these islands like Christmas Island were not part of that zone um which leads to like 2012 where Australia itself, like the mainland is now an exclude, like a refugee exclusion zone. So basically like, even if you like got to Australia by boat from Indonesia, uh, even if you got to the mainland, you're still like there illegally. Like, so there's no possible way for anyone to be a refugee uh, and come to Australia, Um, you know, which is, uh, yeah which is why that uh the Madison island people in the mass island are still there and they may never be resettled into australia um because of yeah that 2012 bill so that's basically how we got there uh i mean in between there's like you know um as i said like uh different um different governments like the tony abbott government who is also a liberal government and the malcolm turnbull government which is also a liberal government um, they've basically been, like, slowly ramping up, uh, you know, the inhumane conditions uh, in order to appease, you know, like, this nativist uh, streak within Australia, um, which is embarrassingly large. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Uh, so, the reason why a lot of this stuff, uh, you know, about the Exclusionary Zone also was in retaliation, because, um you know, in Villawood Detention Centre and Woomera Detention Centre, you know, people have, like, successfully uh, de-arrested refugees, if that's the right word. Um, They they storm the fences. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And I think it was, uh, there was, like, a handful of refugees who were never uh, caught, you know, so hopefully they're somewhere in Australia (laughs) uh, safe. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah, no, but um I wanted to go over too like the like the Australian governments, I think legal argument is like they never technically like with with Buchani say like they never technically set foot on Australian soil, I think. So they don't have to give them human rights or something. Uh
1: yeah, well that was like that was when back before two thousand and twelve. Um you know. Um Yeah, so basically like the idea of an offshore center was that, you know, We would um, like, as I said, Christmas Island is technically a territory of Australia, but they developed this, like you know, uh, refugee exclusionary zone. You know, so basically, like if you uh, didn't, yeah, if you didn't set foot on the mainland, then you weren't subject to rights under Australia's agreement with uh, the UN Human Rights Commission. but in, as I said, like in 2012, uh, the mainland is now technically a refugee exclusion zone. So even if you set foot in the mainland, you still have no rights. Like we now do not recognize any refugee uh, unless they come by uh, uh, plane or I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, in one of these exchanges, I guess
0: yeah and that that leads to like one of the scenes in the book where um buchani like the presser because he's in one of the first um groups to be sent to Manus island so there's like a scene in the book where he's going out where basically he's being transferred and being flown in a plane to Manus island from i think christmas island and uh the press turn up and he's you know they all all the all the refugees have to go through, you know, march basically through a line of press having their photos taken onto the plane to be, you know, sent to this uh, essentially uh, detention camp, which, I mean, we're going to describe the conditions of it, but it's more or less a concentration camp, I'd say. Yeah, definitely. Uh,
1: Although, um, since the ride at the end of the book, uh, they, yeah, they have changed conditions, but... It's not anywhere near humane, I don't think. Um, but yeah, I, w- I would say confidently that they're concentration camps, definitely.
0: Yeah, and like, so this, I guess, brings us to uh, Buchani, and you know, he ends up, he attempts to, you know, again, cross by boat into Australia and is picked mm-hmm. up by the Navy, and um, he ends up in Manus Island. And, and while he's there, you know, he smuggled a cell. Phone, I think multiple cell phones, actually, because uh, he he loses a few. And <laughs> basically, he, well, they, they're confiscated. The guards aren't a fan of this. Yeah, yeah. One of the one of the aspects of, of the the tension of the concentration camps is um, you're not allowed to have cell phones, and there's sort of a c- attempted media blackout in some ways. So, yeah. But uh, he he basically text this entire 400 page book through whatsapp to uh, a couple um people he knows in, in australia it seems who then translate it it's written in farsi and then translated into into english
1: mm-hmm. yeah i wasn't um yeah i wasn't sure um if it was kurdish or farsi yeah
0: yeah yeah they talk a bit about that at the end of the book and i'm I, they don't actually get into why he chose to to write it in farsi i'm not uh, 100% on that. Someone, someone should certainly ask about mm-hmm. if that they, if, they're, if they're given the chance. Right. <laughs> well,
1: I mean, the translation, I mean, um, is interesting. Like, um, the poetry itself, like, has, like, you know, slashes for, and line breaks at the same time. Like, it's the first time I've seen something like that, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, so I guess to describe the, the text a bit, it describes the several years he's you know, from like twenty twelve ish to I want to say like twenty eleven, twenty twelve to mm-hmm. maybe twenty seventeen when he's when he's uh, right up to the riot that mm-hmm. led to the changing conditions in Manus Island, yeah. and uh, basically it's a, it's a mix of prose and poetry. And, and certain moments, and I guess we can go into which which moments those are. He he breaks into a kind of uh, he breaks into poetry,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I think that has to do with oh no you go. Oh no, I'm just yeah, I agree. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, yeah, what are you saying?
1: Well, I mean, I think that dovetails into like he um one of one of one of the interesting uh kind of chapters of the book goes into how they um you know, how they kind of like subvert the conditions that they're under. Um you know, and he talks about um I don't remember like you know the guy who dresses up and they dance and you know like uh, you know they use oh, the they table song. as a drum. Yeah, uh, are they like a like a uh, like a Romani type of um, ethnic minority or something? Or?
0: No, I, I think I think that person was also Iranian. If I'm if I'm recalling, they might not okay, have yeah. been Kurdish, but they might have, I think they were Iranian.
1: Yeah, because he he talks about. Um, how their, you know, uh how their performance, like singing, dancing, uh, all that sort of stuff is like, you know, uh a part of their life prior to this thing, and they bring that with them inside uh inside the uh detention center. Um but what I found interesting is like, you know, he uh he kind of uses poetry in the same way to like, you know, as a resistance against, you know, uh, I guess, feeling, um, I don't know, uh, disassociative with, on the system.
0: Yeah, he's definitely, like, using it in the moments where, I guess, he's, uh, he's, you know, he's having the most feelings, <laughs> to put it uh right. onely. Yeah, uh, it's oftentimes, like, you know, one of the early scenes in the book when the when the first time he attempted to cross to Australia and the, and the boat he was on sank, uh, he, he breaks into poetry there when the, when the boat's sinking. And then I guess also towards the end of the, the book ends you know, with the, with the riot and all mm-hmm. the climactic scenes in the, in the riot are also told, well, not necessarily told, but they're all conveyed through poetry. He, he goes to poetry in those moments.
1: Right. Yeah, so I mean... I think that was interesting. Uh, uh, I don't know what you would... uh, Yeah, like, I don't know what... Because, like, also I don't know, like, what the constraints of WhatsApp are. You know, like... um, Yeah, because it kind of seems like in the first half of the book that the poems are kind of like a refresher to, to, you know, get him taught, like... So he can, like, write from, like, one day to the next, you know? Yeah, um, it
0: does. yeah, I see what you mean. Like they're um, just sort of not necessarily summations, but like a like a poetic journaling of, I guess, the experience, like how he felt that day. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah, but like toward the second half of the book, he
0: he stops doing that for whatever reason. <laughs> oh, uh, well, I I did notice that some of that had to do with that he w- was going into more like the second half of the book had more like I guess you could say mm-hmm. character sketches of the various. Um, people who are imprisoned with him, whether and, and these are all t- because you know these are people who are still imprisoned by uh, the Australian government. He doesn't give real names and refers to them through like monikers like mm. the Cow. So th- those, <laughs> <laughs> he gives anecdotes about some of those folks and are about the, the hero and whatnot. And if, I feel like in those moments, because he's writing about other people, he doesn't he doesn't have that same need to go into poetry because he's not. It doesn't seem like he's trying to process emotions in that same way, you know what I mean? Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, on that note, I, I remember we were DMing about this, but um, he uses, like, uh, I don't know what you would call it, um, you know, like, in in Homer, uh, especially, like, in things like the Iliad, you know, they always have these, uh, you know, uh, memetic uh, sort of devices for the characters, like, uh, I think it's, like, you know, uh, Athena with, like, the bright eyes and, like, you know, fleet-footed Athena, you know, stuff like that. Um, and he also carries that over. Uh, I don't know if that's, like, a, you know, because that's, like, a device within Farsi poetry or... Um, but, yeah, yeah. something
0: I also noticed. Yeah, it does seem... Is He's definitely, like, engaging with, like... Well, like, at the end of the book, it mentions... Um, some of his influences and stuff and there's definitely you know uh, there's a long list of Kurdish poets and um, you know a a couple poets from the Farsi epic tradition like Ferdowsi and uh, but he's also reading I think authors in the western canon like uh, Kafka and um, Beckett were mentioned I think and also like uh, Foucault and Gramsci as well but yeah so it seems like he it seems like he's (laughs) it is like going into that sort of poetic tradition though I think
1: yeah, because I'm just trying to think of like uh, you know, um, yeah, I'm just trying to think of like some of the characters. He, uh, yeah, I mean, I forget what the boy's name is. Uh, you know, Hamid. The one near the end where he's, like, you know, how he sits. Yes, near the
0: uh, I think he refers to him as the the smiling the smiling boy or something. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I believe uh, his real name was Hamid. Okay.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah, like he kind of like um,
1: invokes those characters with their like little monkeys, you know, um, which I guess you know uh, acts as a kind of you know shorthand.
0: Yeah, and in some cases, like with the cow, I think some not not with them. Um, Hamid, whose story is is very real. Um, but like with the cow, those kind of feel like uh, like composite characters that are just meant to represent like just a certain type of prison and the person in the detention camp that he wants to talk about.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because um, I think the cow is like an illustration of like you know these stubborn people who you know <laughs> can uh, can wait in line seamlessly forever and get all the good stuff
0: yeah he i think he views it as someone who just uh constantly plays by the rules of the of the detention facility and just does not uh fight back in any way
1: mm-hmm. yeah um so i guess yeah i mean uh I think the other thing to say about the poetry is that um did you like? There's there's a shift also, like it, you know, in the first half, it's kind of almost um, you know uh, like direct uh, reportage sort of stuff, uh, but then he like lapses into lyrical poetry uh, toward the second half. Um, did you catch that? Off.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I think a lot of that has to do and that. Like with, I guess, sort of the the changing conditions that that he's dealing with in the in Manus. At least that's how that's how I I read that that change.
1: Uh
0: mm-hmm. yeah, did Yeah, see it?
1: um, yeah, I mean, like that was like one of the things I was uh, unsure about because, like, um, the 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 poetry gets, like, really personal and, um, you know, he starts kind of, like, uh, you know, giving his, like, I guess it's, like, a map of, like, his mental state within within the, um, camp. But the, uh, the text itself starts to become, you know, kind of, like, um, you know, just, like, matter-of-fact stuff you know like uh he kind of falls into this pattern where like you know he'll introduce like one of the characters uh but that's only you know to illustrate like uh the system that he's under like uh what what's it called again the the uh,
0: the cur- the, cur- the, curi- the system
1: yeah so like i didn't you know i kind of felt like you know, the prose switches, like, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of more like, um, you know, so like in the first half of the book, you know, he, he tries to, you know, get to Australia, uh, and a lot of that is to do, like, has to do with, like, um, you know, he ends up in spending a lot of time in Indonesia, you know, kind of, uh, you know, in limbo, uh, and all those the chapters like when he's riding in the truck uh getting out of uh Iran um you know i think he finds like a little uh like a little beachhead uh, in indonesia that he travels to every day um you know so the prose in those sections is like very you know interior um and then yeah like when he introduces like the uh um the system. <laughs> yeah, the no,
0: that's a, that's a good point because once he does start to talk about like, uh, the hierarchical system, he, he like, the, the this book, yeah. yeah, yeah, this book has like, I'd say at the beginning and this, this is something I listened to a couple interviews with Buchani today and uh, podcasts and uh, mm-hmm. he sort of, one of the things he talks about is sort of the limits of journalism because he's written numerous articles for like The Guardian and such publications and about about the conditions and he (laughs) sort of used like that journalistic language is very limited and he wanted to write, you know, a book of, I guess, literature that has that sort of emotional range, but also what, what he does throughout the course of the book. And like, I guess he's kind of setting it up in the first half as he's begins to describe this like philosophical view of, of how the, the prison's operating. Mm. And yeah. And I guess that, that philosophical mode also continues on into the poetry in a lot of ways too.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, So I think that's, you know, important, like that switch. Uh, Because, yeah, like, uh, because the second half then becomes about, you know, uh, yeah, like basically introduces the current, the, what's it called again? (laughs) I keep forgetting the name.
0: Uh, You're talking about the smiling youth again?
1: No, no, the system. Uh, Oh, the Kyriarkal. Kyriarkal yeah so like when he introduces the curiacal system uh from that point forward, it's just like illustrating the relationship uh from the individual characters to to the system
0: yeah well maybe maybe I'll read uh one of the poems that's towards like about three quarters of the way through the book to maybe get at this, mm-hmm. okay, so he go he writes. A war waged with numbers, a numbers war, the frisky hand of the Papus, the imposing stares of the Australian officers, the prisoners trapped in a tunnel of tension, a huge feature of everyday life for the prisoners, day to day, a monstrous part of life. This is what life has become, after all. This is one model constructed for human life, killing time by leveraging the queue as a technology, killing time through manipulating and exploiting the body, the body left vulnerable, the body and object to be searched examined by the hands of others the body susceptible to the gaze of others a program for pissing all over life and i guess like yeah and that's and that's him describing uh i guess he goes, this is uh, at one point he goes through the whole sort of um how many like the, the security uh, of the of the prison and also um how in this case how the med- the medical conditions of the prison and how you know the the care is essentially rationed and no one ever actually gets to see a doctor which ultimately leads to the death of um the smiling youth Hamida later in the book
1: yeah um uh, he also uh he was talking about uh you know uh i i don't, i forget if it's in the book or it was in an interview he did but he was talking about like how uh Some prisoners can even like develop addictions to paracetamol uh just through this like you know uh this like everyday sort of like routine you know uh like they line up to to see a nurse you know, and uh no matter what your um yeah no matter what your ailment is, you know they just give you like paracetamol and uh tell you that you know oh, the doctors are coming from the mainland, you know. Yeah, they'll be and, here next month. Yeah, yeah, like, you know, so yeah, the, these doctors are always on their way. They never kind of arrive, you know. And uh, just through this process of, like, trying to, you know, uh, treat whatever illness, that, you know, they're suffering from, yeah, they get addicted to Uh, to the actual paracetamol. Well, I guess, like, they become physically dependent on it, you know, which to me is kind of shocking because, um, you know, like paracetamol is, like, a fairly non-addictive substance, you know, (laughs) and its, like, um, effects on the body is, you know, well, it's bad for the liver, but, like, it's not as dramatic as, say, like, codeine or, you know, an opioid of that caliber.
0: Yeah, and I think part of what he's talking about, too, with that is just, like, the need to have like the in terms of like he also i think talks about how the prisoners themselves also um become like habituated to the system and it's just something for them to do they feel the the need to do it not necessarily perhaps like not like not to a, that downplay being addicted but also to like it's just something every day that they can do in a a place where they don't have anything to do.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think he talks about... uh, He talks about how, like, you know, because... Because, like, the whole system is set up around repetition. uh, Like, you know, that it doesn't matter, like, what it... Like, it, it could be something as, like, tiny as, you know... Um yeah, it could be something as like tiny as, you know, seeing a lizard in the compound or, you know, uh having a different dessert for no reason. Uh, but like these sort of things become like, you know, gossip uh <laughs> you know, around the camp. Um, yeah,
0: and people kind of work out their own astrologies to figure out when they're gonna happen, he kinda says. Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, I thought that was interesting
0: because, uh, like, another thing also that
1: hangs over the whole book is that um, you know the the uh, bush is being cleared uh, near.
0: I don't is is it near his uh, like demountable? You mean like they're they're clearing land for another uh, prison? Yeah, but I don't think he. He doesn't
1: really say that it what it's for until at the end, right? Like but it's this constant uh you know, kind of symbol that hangs over the book, you know, like Yeah, yeah. Whatever's happening within the narrative, like, you know, he looks over and they're still, you know, uh, clearing land or, you know, then all of a sudden one day the uh you know, the the scaffolding for buildings go up, you know. Um all of stuff so yeah. that was interesting as well,
0: yeah, well, that reminded me of one of the other things that i, I thought was that was interesting like the the comp- the compound for uh the doctors and i guess the the bureaucrats for the for the prison um and also solitary are located in an area referred to as the green zone which uh mm-hmm. for if you for uh, people with long memories, you might remember that was the area in Baghdad during the Iraq during the early stages of the Iraq War that were like termed like the safe zones. So I, I thought it was just as weird because we, I guess this brings us to another point too, which is that the one of the security staff is is G4S, uh, the, the right. private the private prison group, and it's just you see a lot of these kind of and uh, Abu Chani I think is very aware he's doing this like there's these these resonances with the war on terror or you know the global military industry the global uh prison complex or whatever that he's constantly uh bringing up
1: mm-hmm. yeah um and also the way he describes like the hierarchy of the prison stuff because i think like the g4s are like they're at the top uh and then uh, native people are like kind of at the bottom. So there's also like that colonialism aspect to it as well.
0: Yeah. And there's, and you know, the, the various people imprisoned have like, you know, a, a, I think a different relationship with the indigenous folks of Manus Island than, say, the Australian guards. And Buchani goes into that in quite some detail. Right.
1: Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, I think we're talking about what. I mean sometimes it can get a bit uh I don't know, racist, I think. Um you know, specifically the thing that sticks out in my mind is like, you know, uh besides being gods, they're also like, you know, hire them as cleaners. And uh they you know, he he explains like how they come in and uh, you know, like in these big crews and like clean the uh bathroom, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he talks about, like, when no one's looking, they, like, goof off, you know, and he, he kind of paints them as, like, these childlike
0: you know. Uh, L- literally as child, literally described as childlike at times.
1: Yeah, that's why I mean, yeah, like, uh, because I think, uh, he, you know, they hit and kick each other all the time, which he translates as something that children would do, um, but yeah, it. The way he describes it also reminds me a lot of, you know, how, um, you know, some like the French, uh, Orientalists, like, viewed Vanuatu and stuff like that. Yeah, there's, tr-
0: I'm, no, no go on.
1: Yeah, I forget who, which one it was, but it was a painter who, who lived in Vanuatu and also... Gauguin? Go, go uh, it could be, yeah. Um... He did, like, all these women paintings, you know, but he also talks about the natives being, like, literally like children.
0: Yeah, and I mean that that language of, uh, like, you know, referring to a certain group of people as children. Again, like, in the United States, I hear that language, and I'm like, yeah, that's that's the language of slavery. Okay, that's interesting, yeah. Yeah, because like- the, there's, a, there's a whole, I mean, there are, Multiple ways that slavery get, got talked about in the 19th century, but that was certainly one mm-hmm. that that paternalistic relationship. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I didn't pick up on that. No, I mean that's just like for me where my where my mind goes. Uh, you're you're right though. It's more of a colonial thing, I think, in in this context. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, but I I guess I don't know like because um, he doesn't really address it. So I wonder if like this is a part of the system. Like, he's sort of, you know, embodying this hierarchy, you know, and he doesn't realize that he's, like, participating in this, uh, you know, this hierarchy that runs the system, the prison system.
0: Yeah, that, that's definitely one way to look at it because uh, he does talk frequently about how everyone is upholding the system in in various ways, and interestingly, one of the groups he comes down hardest on is the is the translators because they you know he I think he basically might, this might have been an interview I heard with him but basically he he says you know they have no agency they just repeat what they're told
1: yeah and he also like he also um talks about them as if like uh you know they have to be detached you know <laughs> um I think he like specifically talks about like a uh woman translator and he talks about like how cold her heart must be you know because she's like she doesn't even look at at the uh, you know at the inmates uh you know she just kind of uh you know translates whatever whatever the Australian minister or whatever is saying and then you know but at no point does she make eye contact with anyone at no point does she recognize that there's a room full of people in front of her, you know. uh, And it's like, he describes it as very, like, robotic-like, which is, um, yeah, it must be tough
0: to, uh, you know, at least
1: I would imagine that, yeah, you would have to uh, have some sort of, like, detachment, you know.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that gets into one of the main things he talks about, too, is how this system sort of dehumanizes pretty much everyone involved in it. To, in different ways and to different effects but you know the, the translators lose their agency the the local the indigenous folks are treated as children the you know he's of course imprisoned yeah mm-hmm. it, it's a whole you know he, again he has that sort of systemic idea of these interlocking forces that um come together to seem to oppress everyone and create this horrible situation yeah. Uh,
1: well I mean how did you what did you think about his use of the uh K-Kural system?
0: Yeah, I kind of um, cuz that was like a term like I think mostly associated with a theologian whose name I I'm not going to attempt to pronounce on this podcast. Uh <laughs> and I'm not I'm not actually sure how she uses it initially. I think for her, it's a way to sort of incorporate um, a fem- feminism into uh, s- certain biblical t- sort of biblical readings. But I'm not sure um, how I how I take his reading. You know, there were a couple notes at the end of the book regarding, like, saying how he was trying to wrestle with both you know talk like the hegemony as used as used in Gramsci and the sort of panopticon of Foucault and also, mm-hmm. these concepts of, of colonialism that that he's in um, part of here, it, I think for him it's a way of trying to reconcile all these forces in a way, but also, um, I guess, keep them as uh, like identifiable and not necessarily blend them all together, like totalize them all together. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it's such a hard word to
0: pronounce. Uh, yeah, every time I say it, I'm like, uh-oh, did I mispronounce it? I think it. I think it's Kiriarchy, though.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, the interesting thing for me about the Kiriarchy thing is, like, also, from what I read, it, it tries to, uh, you know, not, not only does it try to... My girlfriend how... says
0: it's Kiriarchy, by the way, Farah <laughs> chiming in.
1: Okay, so we have a definitive... <laughs> Oh, so, yeah, okay, so, yeah, the hierarchy well, from what I read is like it not only does it try to um basically point out how everyone like upholds the system, but it also tries to go into how you know privilege and works within the system, so like a part of how that system operates is that it gives you know privileges to. To other people, who then like police, like everyone else. As a result, you know. Um,
0: yeah, yeah, and I guess like one interest. I just want this is one uh, story I did want to get into too. Was um the mm-hmm. do you remember the, in the book where he talks about like uh the mango tree that was over the Kurdish section of the prison? Yeah, 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 and how I guess they sort of banded together to get a monopoly on the mango mango fruit. And you know, mm-hmm. just, I I want to bring this up too because what you mentioned earlier about like the prisoners at times and Buchani in particular having moments where the moments of freedom, moments where they're able to sort of uh, exercise agency. And you know, one one night he basically climbs atop the, the 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 prison building he's in and like basically sits under the mango tree and looks out toward the ocean. And I think that mm-hmm. might be the first time he's seen the ocean in in several a couple of years at that point too. Yeah, um,
1: yeah, I think so. Is, that's when he's like puts his feet along the fence, you know.
0: Yeah, and then there's another later time where he actually does uh, <laughs> scale the fences at night and goes goes to see the ocean. Yeah,
1: um, well, I, I guess like uh, the mango tree was interesting because he has a. Um, uh who who's like the giant? Uh
0: what's... uh Reza. Yeah, do you remember what his nickname was in the I book? I believe um, it was the gentle giant. But it, there the there are, there are two named characters, the 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 smiling the smiling youth, uh Hamid and the gentle giant, uh Reza, and they're both named because they're all eventually uh, killed. Mhm. Yeah, so, like
1: um he he talks about how like Reza kind of um you know disrupts that mango tree system uh you know in the sense that uh I think um someone tries to pick it up who's not kurdish, and uh i think uh he starts to get harassed by a group of Kurdish uh inmates and like razors there to uh you know stop them from um
0: you know from harassing uh this. i think it was like a one of the ringa people. Yeah, it might have been too. And that also like one of the things that Buchani talks a lot about too is like um freedom. I think he has a like a I guess a interesting conception of, of freedom in the book. Did you did you did you see like what he was trying to do with freedom? Uh what what do you
1: mean? <laughs> I don't yeah. remember him
0: like using the actual word freedom, but yeah or maybe free or something, but he doesn't, uh, he does, I remember this one line, I was trying to find it, but I'm struggling to, but I think he Mm -hmm. essentially sort of says, like, he kind of pits, he sort of mm, says, uh, hold on, let me see if I can find it, but let me, let me, like, so what did you think of, um, I guess the detail, like how that went with Reza, and uh, when he gave the mango to the, to the non-Kurdish person, who I think you're right, was Ranga.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, the only thing I was going to say about that is, like, uh, Reza seems to be, he's always in a in position of disruption of, like, these little, like, territorial disputes, you know. Um, you know, it, like, just, uh, just before he dies, you know, he's in an area where he's not supposed to be, you know, um... Yeah, so it's like every time he's mentioned, he's like sort of, uh, you know, disrupting uh, this like self, you know, uh, like they self-segregate, you know. Um, Yeah, so I thought that was interesting, like because he's, you know, one of the only characters that, you know, doesn't really fit into the system because like, you know, the cow fits in because he's this guy who just basically has endless endurance for the, uh, you know, lining up and procuring of, like, you know, special items. You know, I think he's he's got a tub uh, which, like, you know, only a handful of people were able to, like, get this tub in which to, like, wash themselves with, you know. Um, and I think uh, he is, like, one of the integral people to getting, you know, <laughs> to uh, getting the cakes and redistributing them amongst people. Um but yeah, so like, you know, some character like I the thing is interesting where like all these characters have a specific role within the camp except for Razor,
0: you know. Yeah. Well let me let me read the quote that I was trying to find because I found it. Um okay. So okay. Buchani writes, the prisoner constructs his identity against the concept of freedom. His imagination is always preoccupied with the world beyond the fences, and in his mind he forms a picture of a world where people are free at every moment. His life is shaped by the notion of freedom. It's a basic equation, a cage or freedom. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And that was like, I guess for me, that was an interesting like thing to read because there is like a lot of, I guess, philosophical, right? Like in scenes of subjection by Hartman, like the idea that uh, freedom is inherently tied up like with notions of unfreedom. Like you can't have Mm -hmm. freight. Yeah. And I I mean, I know you, you have thoughts on that kind of those sort of constructions, but like seeing him, I guess, constructed in that way, it was like, I guess, like in terms of the curiarchy, it was, it was, uh, it was interesting to, to see how, I guess that kind of thing would operate, how, how that kind of, um, uh, like, let me see here constructing your identity against the concept of freedom, how that would maybe fit into this system. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Yeah, well, I mean, he also... um, Let me see who this is about. He also has a line... um, He has two lines I thought was interesting along these lines. Um, I'm just trying to... Um... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know who he's uh Yeah, I don't know who he's talking about, but like, you know, he has a line where he says like he's clearly a brave man, though his behavior is extremely naive, you know.
0: Oh, so, that was um I'm pretty sure that was about the hero.
1: Okay, yeah, yeah. Um You know, so he he often like, I mean,
0: naivety <laughs>
1: um it seems like what he what he's getting at is like, uh, the the people who aren't affected, you know, the people who are most free within the camp. He, like, I mean, these are motifs of like childhood, right? Like, the papa is uh, a childlike, you know, uh, the people who are like bravest are the most naive, you know. Um, so I guess, like, you know i guess what he's trying to get at is like you know in order to not be corrupted by the system like you have to uh you know almost uh you know be inhuman in some way i, I maybe inhuman is the wrong word but you know uh, well he does he,
0: he does refer to like certain moments like of mm-hmm. i think of particular maybe not freedom but of moments where people fight back as like animalistic so i i do think you're you're right yeah i mean at least in how he's thinking about it
1: yeah Um i just there's another line that he talks about um uh yeah, he also says this line, uh, when a prisoner spills his blood, he appears to enter a state of ecstasy and euphoria for some minutes, an existential moment, emitting the scent of death. The face, the face goes white like chalk. Blood is an amazing element of nature, warm crimson, with a scent that induces horror. So, like, yeah, like, you know, again, he's also talking about, like, um, uh, yeah, like because I think he's talking about like, you know, the the times in which like the prisoners have like, you know, tried to commit suicide w- within the uh within the um, bathrooms and that this always happens after like um you know, people who have been holding out hope like get a message that like basically says, yeah, there's no hope, you know. Um but yeah, he he talks about like you know these events as if they're like the people doing them are in sort of some sort of like religious frenzy <laughs> you know
0: um,
1: yeah there's that it- moment
0: there's that moment too <clears throat> with the guy i think he refers to as the prophet who kind of escapes i mean by, by kind of i mean he i think more or less gets outside the fence and start and has a starts a scene out like next to a large like coconut tree, i believe just outside the prison walls and uh mm-hmm. Buchani describes like his resistance to the guards and their fear of him as being like you know he's a man who is, is the prophet he's you know having that sort of religious ecstatic experience and the guards don't come near him until they basically get like a riot squad of like 20 guys and you know full body armor to, to go tackle him <laughs> yeah uh
1: is that where he's like on the roof at night
0: because he's like
1: scream, moaning or
0: screaming. Or yeah, like? I think that's how that scene ended, actually. Yeah, so that moment of him climbing up on the roof ends with him, I think, seeing the the guy tr- putting up that essentially a protest. It seems like.
1: Yeah, I mean, what did you think of the roof? Bit uh, in terms of like freedom, because he he seems to be like, uh, you know uh what's the word like it it seems like uh this is like the he's one rebellious act in the whole thing you know <laughs> up until that point
0: right it, at times it seems like i don't think it, it's it reminds me though i don't think he's doing this like for instance uh, like after right at the end of world war Two, uh jean paul sartre wrote like a essay where there's a line in it where he says something to the where he says something to the effect of we were never more free than under the nazi occupation which is to say we were never more free than when we had no freedoms when we had no hope and it seems at times that buchani like views moments like he has he always he does always have this pessimism about him where he realizes that the like especially towards the riot at the end and the acts of the, the character referred to as the hero and who he often describes as naive, like he has this like pessimism about these moments of rebellion that are carried out by uh the, the prisoners when they're like at their most hopeless. Does mm-hmm. that make sense?
1: Yeah. Well yeah, yeah, it does make sense. But um Yeah, I can see yeah, I can see what you mean. Um, because, yeah, like, that's, like, also in the, uh, you know, when he talks about, like, the people trying to commit suicide, uh, he also talks about them as if they're, well, that's what I was kind of getting at, right? Like, every time you know, someone has any proximity to what he interprets as freedom, uh, you know, they, uh, yeah, like, they're expressing some sort of preternatural ability, you know, to to like escape the conditions. Um but yeah, like uh it's it, it kind of reminds me of like, you know uh the this whole idea like, you know, when when you're backed into a corner that's when you're most dangerous, you know? <laughs> Which is like literally what happens uh at the end.
0: Yeah, and then, I mean that's the whole book is building up to like a riot of, you know, all the well, actually, it's not all the prisoners. It's they're, they're divided, in the thing, I think, into four separate like camps, and one of them, I think, Mike, Mike mm-hmm. Camp, uh, is the one that ultimately riots and revolts. But yeah, you're right. It does seem like um, it. It all is sort of building up to a hopeless revolution. Not into not in the sense that the maybe not necessarily in the sense that the the uprising itself is hopeless, but that it's like the freedom is fueled by the unfreedom. If that makes sense,
1: and I don't think yeah.
0: And I did want to add, too, I don't think that bringing up, like, say, the Sartre thing is too outlandish because at the end of the mm-hmm. book, it mentions one of the things he's reading is Samuel Beckett's Molloy trilogy, which, and I think would have been very much in line with the sort of that Sartre thing I'm talking about.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, I just
1: skipped that whole uh, section of my teenage years, you know.
0: <laughs> I mean, that's, I d- yeah. <laughs>
1: The existentialists are a big gap in my sort of thing, so... But no, I, yeah, de- I definitely think it's relevant.
0: Yeah, but I mean, what do you... Th- what, I mean, I guess, I guess, what do you think of, like, the ultimate climax to the book there, of the of the riot and how he describes it?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, it, it seems to me that, you know, from a Marxist perspective, it makes sense, right? Because, like... Um, you know, like, we always talk about, like, you know, the the material conditions for a revolution, you know. Uh, and that revolution just doesn't happen, right? Like, it, there needs to be, you know, a, a moment in history with the right conditions, you know, uh, that supports, like, this revolution. And, I, you know, I think that's very consistent with what, how he describes, like, you know, the, the backlash against uh, this, you know, the kurkugaki <laughs> the hierarchical system
0: um i've been reminded by Farah that that is the correct pronunciation
1: <laughs> yeah yeah hierarchical um yeah so, like you know i th- i think uh it, it makes sense to me you know uh in that sense like um it's only yeah like, it's it's only when they basically like lose uh all hope of uh you know of existing that that this huge backlash like happens um and I think it's like you know I think it's pertinent also uh to keep in mind um especially like you know in a system that we're currently in which you you are like you are the administrator of your own life at the moment
0: oh you're you are the administrator of your own life.
1: Yeah, like I mean, sociologically, like what neoliberalism does is like you know, before in like uh, bureaucratic like capitalism, uh, you know, where there is like mismanagerial class which like, you know, regulated your life, you know. Uh you went to like uh you know, the dole office to collect your doll, you know, or what you know, whatever the case may be. Uh, well, since technology, the internet, neoliberalism, basically, all that like bureaucratic administration is now your responsibility. Uh, this like the managerial class have no responsibility to you anymore as a, like as a citizen. You know, uh, it's your, um, you know, it's kind of like you, you have to like submit your, the you have to like find the forms download them fill them out and send them back you know like you are responsible for all the administration now um and i think you know it has parallels to what he's talking about in terms of how all the prisoners kind of self-regulate in, in the same manner you know um and that you know it's only it's only until there's like yeah there's there's no hope of like uh you know escaping that system in which like you know the backlash happens
0: yeah and i guess this is like a good point maybe to talk about maybe the situation now in australia and how because i think buchani i've li- like again i listened to a, a couple interviews with him today and one in particular with um pen australia he kind of goes he kind of when asked like you know what are you hoping this book accomplishes more or less he he sort of says i'm not i'm not quite sure what it could accomplish given you know the the situation in australia and even though this uh, riot and uprising in the in the detention facility was successful in getting them more freedoms they're still ultimately i guess uh in prison there so i guess like what how do you see this book like being received in in Australia. Um
1: well I haven't I haven't heard anything about it. So <laughs> I mean yeah uh it hasn't seemed to have made any like cultural impact uh you know and um yeah I mean like I guess the uh I mean it, it's really difficult because like uh these like these, like um you know the laws that are in place at the moment that is responsible for these caps uh you know you know it's we're we're talking about like over a decade of um you know policy uh so i mean I you know like he he talks about how he how he's certain that if people just knew the conditions that you know they would seek to change the system but I don't think he realizes that like you know this is the system people vote for like um, you know like for instance like in this last election there was uh, the uh, Labour prime, the Labour candidate his name was Bill Shorten and um, you know, like on on sort of like not even conservative pages, but like, you know, uh centrist or whatever you want to call it. Um you know, like they had these like memes of like Bill Shorten uh you know, pulling a boat ashore, like on a beach that has like an ISIS fighter inside the boat, you know. <laughs> so like um there's this like perception in Australia right now that, you know, uh any any you know, person seeking refu- like refugee status is like, you know, a uh, um a belligerent, you know, Muslim and therefore, you know, needs to be kept at it by any means necessary, you know. 'Cause it even though like Australia has had very few um, you know, sort of terrorist attacks when compared to like America, you know, with nine eleven and San Bernino and all that sort of stuff. Um Australians are, like, disproportionately paranoid uh, that, you know, such a attack is just around the corner. Um, so, I mean, yeah, like, Stop the Boats is something that both parties, like, run on as a platform. And, you know, it just matters by how brutal you want that, you know, stopping the boats uh, policy to be. And from what I've seen, you know, the the sadism involved in that is, you know, Australian public, uh, you know, uh, you know, they have a, you know, (laughs) um, yeah, I guess the taste for blood is, like, you know, kind of common in the Australian electorate at the moment. So, yeah, like, I don't think that detailing, you know, just explaining how bad the conditions are will affect change, because Um, a lot of people vote that for the system to be as brutal as it can be, you know. Um, and you see that, you know, within the uh, the political ads, you know, and and how they um, you know, because like another thing that's interesting is that like, have you seen any like Australian uh, um immigrant like no, tourism ads in America or
0: uh terrorism Australian immigrant terrorism ads.
1: No, no. uh, Tourism, sorry.
0: Oh, (laughs) tourism.
1: No, not that I can recall. Um, So, basically, like, most Australian tourism ads overseas, like, we're portrayed as welcoming people, you know? Like, uh, you know, we're just ordinary people, you know? Like, and, uh, you know, once you come to Australia, oh, you know, we'll send Devo out to the gates, you know? He'll let you in, you know? And then, yeah, you know, like it, they're portraying it as like you know, I, I guess like the Simpsons joke, right? They're sort of portraying that as a reality, like you know where they, uh, you know, when Bart, uh where the Simpsons go to Australia and uh, you know, uh, they have to get the prime minister, and it's just some guy like you know uh, lounging in a lake. I don't know if you remember that episode of The Simpsons, but
0: I was never, I was never really a big Simpsons fan, so. I don't Okay, that. right, right. Well basically it's like, you know,
1: um yeah, so the way that Shane wants to be trade is like this, you know, we're these welcoming people, you know. And uh we're very down to earth, you know, we're um but like you know the, the the actual reality is kinda like the exact opposite of that. Like we're extremely Uh, suspicious of anyone uh, who's not Australian coming into the country, Um, you know, and even, like, it it gets so bad that, um, you know, basically, like, so I guess we we should also talk about the Christchurch shooting.
0: Yeah, I mean I was about to say, you know, I, like I don't know like Australia's probably exported more mass shooters than it's imported. Right, right.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um and I think that's like, you know, that is a direct um that that's the, you know, the fact that we produce so many like violent uh, you know terrorists is like you know, directly to how we um, how we talk about, like, immigration, and specifically, like, Islamic immigration. And I guess that's the irony, right? Is, like, a Kurd is not... People wouldn't recognize someone who's Kurdish from someone who's just Iranian, right?
0: Um, Most people, you know? I think, don't even realize that Iran isn't a homogenous nation. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, basically what it means, like, It doesn't matter, like, if you're from Iran, you're Muslim, and that's it, you know, and if you're Muslim, you're hostile towards Australia, you know. Um, I think we talked last time about, you know, the no-go zones and all that sort of stuff.
0: Um, How is is life in your no-go zone going?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I haven't been beheaded yet, so, you know, uh, life is pretty sunny here, but... Yeah, like I I don't know, I'm struggling to find the words to explain just how like rampant the you know the racism is in Australia. Because I don't know, it's not something I can easily put into words, but it's like it affects every level of life in Australia. just, uh, you know. Um and I think the other thing to point out is it's definitely racism because um you know, uh our immigration minister last election cycle um not you know he wanted to bring like white south african farmers into the country uh you know expedite their yeah you know, immigration process because of like you know these uh, reports that they were being disproportionately like killed in south africa you know
0: which yeah nonsense. that's no and that's mm-hmm. and to be clear that that the the idea that right the the idea that um white south african farmers are being killed is a is a long-standing white nationalist line like that's that's just straight up white nationalist propaganda
1: yeah yeah um but in australia not only is it not propaganda like it's uh you know it's reality you know no that's that...
0: that's ended up on fox news here too yeah
1: oh really yeah
0: oh yeah
1: <laughs> i mean it's quite amazing um but yeah, so, like, our immigration minister was willing to roll out the red carpet, you know, no detention centers, you know, nothing like that, just, you know, plain and then instant, you know, integration. Um, so, it's obviously not a matter of immigration, because if it was, then, you know, why would we be rolling out the red carpet for South African farmers, you know? Um, yeah. So it's definitely like tied into like, you know, our just like visceral paranoia about, you know, Islam and um yeah, you know, Muslim people, you know. So yeah, so I I don't think he realizes just like the um you know sadism that exists for you know, punishment in Australia. Um but I guess my hope for the book would be that you know he so not only does he like lay out like a you know analytic framework for understanding this stuff uh and he also is like you know telling really important stuff about um what happens to you know to a people when they lose you know all rights as human um but he also is a lot of part of the book. He also points out like how uh, you can resist like you know these oppressive systems like through social relations you know through music through dance you know obviously he's using poetry in that same way i think that's really important so yeah i would get uh, i would say that if the book that would be my hope for the book that it would you know uh kind of inspire other people to you know, get involved in artistic projects of this kind, um, whether that be like refugees themselves or like you know uh, people facing you know these sort of discriminations we're going to share as well. Or, you know, um, but we got to yeah. So I mean, I'm a bit pessimistic on it changing the landscape. <laughs> is what yeah, I'm, I mean, what I'm say.
0: yeah, for sure. And I mean, I have like like my pessimistic read on this book was like very pessimistic, and that this this is like. Mm-hmm. The first literature we're seeing from the the coming eco fascism of cli- that climate change is about to usher in like that's that's mm-hmm. for me the the dark place this book perhaps could go, but I guess like two reasons that i'm i guess a little more like two reasons i guess I'm a little more hopeful about this book too is like mm-hmm. it is like we've we've i think been talking and discussing in some places like critiquing the ideology in this book and whatnot, but it is like really cool to see a book that is this ambitious like on a theoretical level Mm -hmm. and incorporate in while incorporating, you know, prose and poetry and trying to be, I guess, innovative on that level. Like, I don't know, it it doesn't, this, this is the kind of thing that I don't know. I've not really seen anything like it in America and it's, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, it's worth reading for a lot of reasons, including that one. And I guess too, it is, he is someone who I think, despite, I think he is quite pessimistic overall, but despite that, he does still have some belief in, like, the power of, like, literature having some kind of power to shape shape the world. And, you know, over here in America, there's an idea that, like, poetry is powerful because it actually has no power. So poetry is powerful because it's powerless or something. And that to mm-hmm. me just seems like, you know, institutional the institutional view because effectively po- poetry, if it has any power, has surrendered it to institutions and in surrendering its power to institutions, it's then granted some kind of power within them. And I think maybe this is a book that, you know, is wholly apart from that and, and is much different in ambition in a lot of ways. And that that to me is a is a good sign, I suppose. But what you were gonna say something, I think. Um
1: yeah, I mean, I I agree on that. Like, it's definitely. Well, and the other thing that just occurred to me is that um, I forget that French guy. Uh, is it like Edouard Louis? Yeah, the a,
0: you're talking about the end of Eddie.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
0: the guy who wrote, yeah, is it Eddie Louis or something?
1: Um, but yeah, like the French. There's this French author who is uh, writing a trilogy. You know, kind of about his life, but he incorporates. Bordeaux into his um, like fiction you know so not only is he like kind of like writing an autobiographical sort of like you know set of books but he's also like giving context to these memories as he grows up through like sociological uh, sort of theory so I think like that like what he's doing and also what Bachani's doing give a good model I guess, for that as well, which is, you know, pertinent if you are looking for ways to incorporate, like, you know, uh, sort of like critical theory and, and art, uh, you know, kind of this this mixture.
0: Yeah, which I think a lot of people want to do. And, but it, 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 seems like, it seems like at times that, you know, there are certainly good examples like a map to the door of no return or something, but the number of good examples is, is quite few and oftentimes it feels like the people who attempt it fall short in a lot of ways like either in terms of like not coping with the actual theory or just not writing well that makes sense
1: yeah well i mean my major criticism of that sort of thing is that you know uh i said this on an old podcast but like you know instead of you know humanizing uh, the theory, um, leftist theory often tries to universalize it. It tries to do the reverse, you know? So, yeah. Um, you know, like it, it takes the individual and the, the human out of like, you know, the struggle, you know? Um, but I, I like this approach much better because like, you know, um, like by keeping it specific you know uh, it's also you're never uh, kind of abstracted away from the human cost of like you know these systems Uh, which I think you know like is one of the pitfalls you know because like I would say that you know class reductionism is an example of that where you know I don't think class reductionists are uh I don't think they mean to be, you know, racist or sexist or whatever, Um, but that's exactly where their theoretical uh, kind of mind takes them, you know, but I think, you know, you get there through this, like, abstraction, you know, you're not seeing the, um, you know, like, the people who are suffering under that system, you know, you just have this theoretical framework of, like, you know, well... Uh we have you know, like uh what what's that phrase again? Like uh you know, uh the sea lifts all boats or whatever.
0: Oh a rising tide lifts all boats, I think you're going for.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh they always think about the economy, but it always reminds me of like class reductionism as well, right? Like if no, we just like solve yeah, yeah like so... You know? Know? Um so I think like yeah, like I think this is kind of an antidote to that. That sort of like intellectualization.
0: Yeah, and and I was going to say too something, I meant to say this earlier, but like in a lot of ways like, mm-hmm. I remember a few years ago before intersectionality was torpedoed by, well, a lot of people but before that happened, mm-hmm. I think Kiriarchy was going through a revival as a way to think about intersectionality on like a a grander scale but not necessarily, that's not exactly true but <laughs> it it does have a lot of similarities i think in allowing people to think through these larger problems without necessarily trying to come up with a universalized uh m- formula whether it's you know the class reductionism or what what have you well i
1: mean in social sciences at the moment the trend is to go beyond macro and micro you know uh and i think like Kiriaki you know, is a good example of that also, right? Because, like, it tries to point out how someone can have privileges under that system, but ultimately, you know, are still oppressed, right? Like, it tries to uh, kind of explain you know, how um, you know, every like, you know, because it reminds me of, like, the whole, like, gender thing, right? Toxic masculinity, you know? Like, toxic masculinity is this, like, idea that you know like not only do men have a um you know disproportionate privilege uh in certain areas but it's like their own idea of like that patriarchal manhood is actually killing them at the same time you know um and that reminds me a lot of like you know sociological concepts like habitus uh that tries to you know answer um it, it tries to answer how, like, you know, these big, like, macro things that seem deterministic, uh, there's, like, a lot of, you know, uh, perks uh, if you're willing to play the game, so to speak, you know. Um, so I think that's also interesting about Kirkyaki. Like, I'm definitely not trying to, you know, say it's, like, uh, not a good, you know,
0: no, like, no, analytic I tool. No, I didn't think so. And I guess, like, to me, one of the things that this, this book, that I guess this um, analysis helped like the book with was like Mm -hmm. trying to figure out like various, you know, I think the point of the various character sketches that he does, like ultimately illustrates how, like you were saying, he can use this sort of hierarchical theory to uh, not necessarily theorize, like uh, not, not do theory on people, but theorize Mm -hmm. through, through the through those experiences, if that makes sense. Yeah, which I think yeah, like that's the,
1: for me that's the key, right? <laughs>
0: oh. Yeah, no, it's it's a. I want to I want to make sure we we highlight that because that was a really good point I think, and a really strong point of the book.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, I don't know it's, what, but what, what do you uh, like when you, when you say that this is the first kind of book in ecofascism, like. Like,
0: how, well, how do you? Well, not not the first, but like the idea that you know a lot of like the the way it's pretty clear that the way climate change refugees are going to be um, dealt with, if current regimes may remain in place, is you know offshore detention facilities or in the U.S. Mm-hmm. detention centers for migrants where you know like you know there's a, essentially a media blackout and it's very difficult to get any coverage in and no one really knows what's going on and all that i mean just all the basically what he describes in the book could become a, a lot more prevalent i think for climate mm-hmm. refugees if you know again if things stay as they are
1: yeah i see yeah i see what you mean yeah um I mean, I think the other thing that we're going to talk about is like the marriage stuff, right? <laughs> the family.
0: Oh yeah, we do need to talk about. I think how he uh, discusses the family because that was, I think, in addition to the how he talks about the indigenous people of Manus Island, the how he conceptualizes mm-hmm. like the family and stuff at times is just it was very problematic. And I think you know it links up with how he talked about um, like the guards. You know, he referred to them as children, and again that same mm-hmm. sort of familial patriarch patriarchal mindset in a lot of ways is, is reflected in, you know how he for instance on the boat when he and i think on the first trip attempted trip he sort of has this idealized version of i believe they were um tamil refugees from sri lanka and he sort of has this whole narrative in his mind built up about you know who they are and what their family's like i guess if that makes sense in sort of very idealized way
1: mm-hmm.
0: but yeah I also think that um, that um
1: he also uh when the boat the second boat that goes down is it the second or first boat?
0: I can't remember Six. which one I definitely the first one sank, but I can't remember if the second one also sank that, that, well I mean... this is, I remember
1: very clearly he's, he's talking about this like uh the one of the mothers, you know, but the way he describes it is kind of like this lion-esque uh, stereotype you know like you know because he talks about like this mother's strength like to yeah save her child you know but it's it's because her child is under threat that she becomes you know this uh she goes like beyond her constraints as a woman you know (laughs) to uh to yeah to like get her child to safety which i thought was also you know uh
0: very stereotypical in the
1: sense of, like, you know, don't mess with cubs, you know, like the
0: lionesses, cubs, sort of thing. Yeah, and there's a moment, too, in the end of the, I guess, the the translator's notes where sort of they're talking about his ideological influences, and there's a moment where mm-hmm. he sort of says he takes, like, Buchani takes, you know, feminism seriously, but I, if I'm recalling correctly, uh, you know, he it sort of just says, we. He, bhutani takes feminism seriously but unlike you know all the other sections where they talk about the influences there's no list of you know feminist writers to my eye that that i recall seeing that he's influenced by
1: Mm -hmm.
0: i I guess in a lot of ways that kind of shows up points like this
1: yeah that's interesting um Except for the kirokyaki, right? That, that's originally like a
0: yeah, I think so a but feminist thing. Or? Yeah, I think so. I think it was, but I, I, it doesn't. I, I can't tell if um that's coming out of um like it. It doesn't seem to me that he's using it in the same manner that uh mm-hmm. that would be indicative of like the feminist tradition. But maybe, maybe I'm wrong.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest problem for me in the way that he views the family is that um, I just don't know how you, how you get to, like, how do you get to, like, emancipatory uh, movements you know, when the basic, like, structure of, like, society is the family, right? Um because, like, that's the other thing I noticed, is that, you know uh, he does a lot to excuse like the bad behaviour of like the father um, who, yeah, who I think is the Tamil father, you know. Uh, But he explains it as kind of like, you know, well, you know, he's trying to do right by his family, you know. Uh, But like the kind of implication of that is, you know, it's his family or the other people, you know. There's, There's this like view that you know, the Tamil family are against the other refugees, you know. Um so I mean yeah, that's one of the big problems that I see with with, you know, the way he describes that is, you know, there's no there's no point in which, you know, uh there's kind of like, you know, an emancipatory moment for everyone, right? Like yeah, like it's like the refugees are often like uh, reduced down to like family units, you know, who are all like kind of uh, also competing against each other, you know.
0: Yeah, I, I agree that um, you're not going to have liberation without the abolition of the family, and it it doesn't seem mm-hmm. like that's and I like you're saying it doesn't seem like that's an idea that that gets reckoned with in this in this book, which um, I think would is a shame because it would have been cool to see that.
1: Yeah, because like I think at the start where they're in the truck, like, I I think there's, like, literally, you know, he he divides them up into family units, you know, Uh, because I remember there's, like, Iranian, there's, like, two Iranians and their brothers, you know, and they're, like, sitting in one corner of the truck versus, you know, (laughs) the Tamils and all that sort of stuff, you know. Um, But, yeah, yeah. Uh, And I also think you I don't think you ever find out what happens to some of those near families either, because yeah, that's the other thing. Like, um, uh, what was that character who left? Uh, like yeah, he was like a school teacher, I think.
0: Yeah, I know who you're talking about. There was one, like the the guy who was like really, I think, proud and like portrayed himself as competent.
1: Yeah, and uh, you know, he has two daughters, and and the you know. He he like he has a family that's in, that's in there, you know. And uh there's uh, I think um during the toilet cleaning one of us something happened and he ended up like this character ended up having to take a shit outside, you know, in front of everyone. And uh it was like this big like thing because this guy kind of Yeah, it led to his disgrace. Respect. Right, right. Um you know I, I, because he comes back into the camp, like, he leaves the camp because of that disgrace, but he comes back into the camp, um, and saying, you know, like, I can't leave my daughters, you know, (laughs) I thought that was a bit weird, like, as in, you know, um, there's this sense of, like, you know, uh, if he's not there, his family are, like, defenseless, you know?
0: Yeah, and there's a lot of moments where, like, there are very, like, I guess traditionally masculine decisions that get made by various characters and it's like those are those are moments maybe where there could have been that like reflection I guess on those motivations in a way that reflects back on whether it's you know dismantling the family or the patriarchy but those those moments are are <laughs> never really taken up in this book I think and that yeah and that, I guess like that's like one of the things like I feel like in terms of the the analysis that he has, um he could have really added, I guess, more feminism to the kiriarchical analysis. <laughs> but uh it, it feels like it's it's missing at times. Um, yeah,
1: like I just think, you know, it's uh it kind of reminds me of like uh you know well it reminds me of like the battle, right? Of like class reduction versus everyone else, you know. Um you know, like without a reputation of like Uh, the patriarchy. There's no
0: emancipatory for any. Like, yeah, it's it's all interconnected. I guess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is there is there anything else you wanted to cover for this? Uh, I don't think that's about it. Um, I mean, I hope I was like lucid. (laughs) No, I think I think it was good, and I think I'm gonna try and do maybe one or two more episodes about this book because it really is like really I think like an important book and. It gets at a Hmm. lot of important topics. So, no, but thank (laughs) thank you for doing this. That's okay, yeah.
1: I mean, yeah, I'd be interested in how other people read it as well.